Welcome back, everybody. I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. So we are here today for part two of James Bolger. We are going to jump right into it. So if you didn't listen to part one, go back and make sure you listen to that so that you know what's going on in this episode. Oh, I've been waiting all week. <laughs> it's crazy. This episode is a lot. So I did cheat cheat a little bit because I looked up the story last week after we did it because it was so interesting. That's okay. (laughs) I think I have a ton of info in here that will be like shocking and crazy. So it'll still surprise you, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I just briefly looked into it. (laughs) That's funny. So last episode, we covered the life and death of that two-year-old, James Bolger, who was at the New Strand Shopping Center with his mom when she let go of his hand to pay at the butcher shop. He was lured out of the shop by two 10-year-old boys, John Venables and Robert Thompson. They took him by foot a few miles away next to a railroad track where they beat him to death with bricks, stones, kicking, and smashing him with an iron bar. His pants were taken off, his foreskin pushed back, and once he was dead, the two boys had placed him on the tracks to be hit by a train in an effort to make the whole thing look like an accident. When the train hit him, it severed his body in two, and this is how he was found two days later. Police had looked at more than 50 boys in the town before they had a tip from a woman that led them to John Venables and his friend Robert Thompson both 10 years old, and we ended last episode with them being brought into the police station for their interviews. I just cannot wrap my mind around that they're 10 years old. I know. I can't either. Like 10 years old. It's so young. Yeah. So I watched that 60 Minutes. I think I talked about it a little bit last episode. It's called 60 Minutes, The James Bulger Murder Inside the Chilling Police Investigation. James Bulger was taken and killed on February 12th, 1993. His body was found on February 14th, 1993. And on February 18th, 1993, John Venables and Robert Thompson were arrested. They were brought down to the police station at 7 a.m. that morning, and they waited all day before their interviews started around 5 p.m. Now, John Venables flat out refuses to admit that he was at the New Strand Shopping Center. In the interview room with him is his mom. Police say to him, you actually were in the shopping center and you guys took that little boy. And he replies, quote, we never, we never, end quote. However, there was a shop owner that had come forward when the CCTV footage was released for the public's help in identifying these boys. And he explains to the police that the morning James Bulger was taken from that center, there were two boys outside of his shop. They were messing around out there for quite some time, and the boys had actually put their hands all over his glass windows, and he hadn't wiped them down yet. 
At the time, police head over to the shop and they took the fingerprints off of the windows. When John is brought into the police station, he had been fingerprinted right away. And as I'm sure you guessed, his prints were immediately linked to the ones taken off of that shop window, which placed him in the New Strand Shopping Center. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't tell him, like, we have you on camera, too. (laughs) They probably did. Yeah, I know. I don't think they did right away, but eventually they did. Yeah. Well, the police are like, okay, but your fingerprints were connected to the prints that we took off of a window that very same day, and these prints link you to the shopping center, so we know you were there. We are also told by Robert that you were the one who took James out by the hand. And John just replies, quote, we never, he's a liar, end quote, and then he starts crying. Oh, he meant the store owner was a liar? No, he's saying Robert was a liar. Because at the end, after they told him that he was connected, they also say Robert said that you took James by the hand. Oh, yeah. And John says, you know, we never he's a liar. He's crying. And the interviewer is like, calm down. And his mom saying, come on, love. It's okay." And then she asks him, is that the God's honest truth? And John says, quote, God's honest truth, mom. I'm telling you that we never. We was too scared. We was probably too scared. End quote. Wait, he said we was too scared? Yeah, we was too scared. We was probably too scared. Too scared to take him? I'm so confused. I think so. Uh, that would be hard as a mom because yeah. you would want to believe your kid. But. Yeah, but it's like at this point, he already said he wasn't there. And then he's like, okay, I was there, but we didn't do anything. Yeah. It's like, "Mm." so they wait for a while and the interview with Robert continues on. And Robert was a lot quicker to admit that he was there. And so when he does, they tell John and his mom that Robert confirms both boys were for sure at the New Strand Shopping Center on February 12th. John finally and quietly admits that, yes, we were there. And the police officer says, quote, so you were in Boodle New Strand, end quote. And his mom quickly jumps in and she's like, quote, was you in Boodle Strand, end quote. And then John starts to cry, quote, yeah, but we never took a kid, mom. We never, we never got a kid. I never got that boy. I never killed him, mom, end quote. At this point, they decide to take a small break with the interview, and John's mother, Susan, asks to speak with her son alone. While she does this, she tells him that they will always love him, that they support him, and that the most important thing to do is tell the truth. John was so fearful of upsetting his mom, so this moment was really the breakthrough of John's interview. The police come back into the room, and now he's ready to talk. He admits that it was his idea to take the little boy, James, and that he was the one that grabbed his hand, but Robert was the one who killed him. He tells them that as they were walking along, the two boys considered just killing James by throwing him into the water at the canal that they had passed on the way to the railroad. So they start telling him, come here, get down, come look at the water, but James wouldn't. 
James must have just been able to fill the danger that he was in. He refused to go near that water with the two boys. So Robert goes over and he grabs him, lifting him up by his feet and dropping him onto his head, giving him a big goose egg right in the middle of his forehead. And witnesses would actually later testify to seeing this. And they saw the little boy being dragged around by Robert and John. Oh my gosh, why didn't they do anything? I know, there were so many people that saw them. They just thought they were family or friends. But if they saw the little boy get dropped on his head. I know. And like looking back, it's like obviously, but I guess in the moment, it wasn't startling enough to them to do anything. Hmm. They continued their trek until they came to that spot on the railroad track where they weren't in plain sight and where they decided to start beating James to his death. John says in his interview, quote, We took him on the railway track and we started throwing bricks at him, end quote. But through his interview, he very much tried to remove himself from the fatal blows and place most of the blame on Robert, as Robert being the center of everything. He tells them how Robert yelled at James and told him to stay down, you stupid divvy. John explains that when James was hit by the iron bar, he got knocked out, and this is when they put his body onto the railway track. So at the same time that John was being interviewed, Robert was at the same police station being interviewed in a different room. Phil Roberts is the one who interviews Robert, and like I said, Robert was much quicker to admit that they were there at the New Strand Shopping Center. Robert Thompson had his solicitor with him, which was Dominic Lloyd. I believe a solicitor is the same as a lawyer here in the United States. They are responsible for being a qualified legal expert who provides expert legal advice and support to their clients. The interview starts off casual and Phil asks, what's your hobby, Robert? What do you like to do? And laughing, Robert is like, my hobby is to skip school. Everyone chuckles a little, and his solicitor, Dominic, is like, yeah, there's no way that this little boy committed this disturbing act. Like, absolutely no way. But then Robert says him and his friend, John, were at the New Strand. In fact, he even admits that they did see James with his mom. Throughout his interview, Robert keeps calling James the baby. So he saw this little boy as a baby. Phil decides to tell Robert that John was saying he wasn't there at the Strand. So he's like, why is he scared to say that he was at the Strand? We know you guys were there. He's probably too scared because something bad happened, right? And Robert replies, quote, like the baby got took, end quote. Phil says yes, and Robert says, quote, not by me end quote. But then he admits that John told the boy to come here, that John grabbed his hand and took him out of the shopping center, and that John was the one that killed him without Robert's help. Robert completely disconnected himself from the crime, saying that he had no part in the killing of James Bulger. At one point in the interview, Robert says, quote, why would I want to kill him when I've got a baby of my own? If I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill me own, wouldn't I? 
end quote. Oh my goodness. It's like eerie thing to say. Yeah. And they're both blaming each other. Yes. They're both saying the other one did it. John's saying they both did it, but it was mostly Robert. And Robert is saying he had nothing to do with it. John did it. And his statement about saying he'd kill his own baby, which I'm assuming he has a baby brother or sister at the time. This statement shook Phil. What a warped little mind, a warped thing to say. And then he asks Robert if the baby was able to talk. Did James say anything to you guys? And then in the most chilling part of this interview, Robert replies, yes, James could talk. And in a very cold way, he said, quote, I want my mom, end quote. But the way he did it, he's like, says it like he was James. So he does it kind of crying like, I want my mom. Like it, everyone just explained it as being like such a cold thing to do. Him talking about it like he was James. And it's really heartbreaking because this was actually one of Denise's worst fears, that James was calling for her at the end of his life and that she never came for him. So Robert starts crying in his interview and says that he's going to get all the blame because he's the one that had blood on him. But in the end, although Robert admits he was there, he continued to maintain that he did not take part in the killing in any way. He even asked at one point if James had been taken to the hospital to, quote, get him alive again, end quote. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they... So, I don't know if that's not him understanding that he was fully dead or if he was just hoping now that they were caught, like, I hope he was okay so we don't get in trouble. Yes. (laughs) But they put him on the train tracks. I know. And a lot of the police actually say Robert was really manipulative. So maybe that's what he was doing here. I don't know why he asked that. Yeah. But Denise says that she will never read the full transcripts of the interviews because it's way too much for her to handle. But she says in her book that she knows the interviews affected the police officers in such a dark way. She saw one of the police officers actually at a police party after everything had happened. And she said she could see the pain in his eyes. Like he wanted to tell her something so bad, but he didn't know how because he didn't want to upset her. That same police officer said later on in an interview, quote, The level of manipulation, detail, and evil for such a young person to be involved in will stick in my mind forever, end quote. So are they mostly blaming Robert then? The police are saying, later on they'll say like that he was the lead. He was like the mastermind. Yes. Uh, I'm glad that she hasn't read those. I mean, you would just have nightmares about it every night. Yeah, I think... It would be way too much to just think about your baby going through that. Oh, yeah. It's probably better for her not to know the details. Yeah, for sure. So with all of the information from each interview, the boys were arrested at 6.40 p.m. that night. And Denise felt this small bit of relief run through her. At least they were off the streets because she knows deep down within her that had they not been caught, they would have gone on to commit more crimes. This was no accident. This was purposeful and premeditated murder of her baby. 
And this is even more apparent to her when she finds out that earlier that morning at the shopping center, John and Robert actually tried to abduct another little boy. But they failed when the boy's mother caught them and took her son by the hand away from the boys. Oh, I bet that mom was so glad that she did that. Because in the moment, I'm sure she didn't even realize like the evil that she was faced with. And then when everything came out, that would just be like kind of overwhelming to realize like your child was so close to that. Yeah. So who are these boys? How do 10-year-olds murder a baby just seven years younger than them? Were they raised in homes that created this, or were they born like this? It's an argument often had in so many cases, nature versus nurture. Is it one or the other, or is it a little bit of both? I would say mental illness. Yeah, and that would be nature, right? Mental illness, if they're just born with it, that's just in them. That's the nature side. Yeah. Then I don't know what it is. I mean, it seems to be different in each case, but I think even in this case, there's a little bit of both depending on the kid you're talking about. Yeah, how are their homes? So Robert Thompson grew up there in Liverpool with a house full of brothers. His mother was Anne Thompson, and she was actually subjected to years of domestic violence from her husband who beat her in front of her children. Not only were these children subjected to watching this violence, but they were also reported to have been beaten by their father as well. Robert was also molested by him. Oh, it's sad. I know. I can feel bad for their life before they committed a crime, but then it's like, well, and then you made your choice on who you were going to be. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we we knew something had to have happened to the boys because... A 10-year-old just doesn't naturally go do that. Yeah. So Robert was tormented with violence, sexual assault, and abandonment all by the age of five years old. His dad had walked out five years before Robert murdered James Bulger. In those five years since their dad had left, the Thompson home was chaotic and dysfunctional. The brothers reported to have grown up afraid of each other. They fought just as siblings do, but they fought in a different way than most siblings do, in a way that was dangerous. I mean, they had grown up seeing domestic violence. So they would bite each other, they would hit each other with hammers, and often just beat each other and torture each other. After their father had left, Ann Thompson buried her emotions with alcohol. She became an alcoholic, and she was more often found at Higgins' Top House, which was a bar in their town, than she was found at home. At one point, it's documented that Anne had to take her third son, Philip, to the police station after he threatened her other son, Ian, with a knife. Later on, Ian had to be taken into care himself because he tried to kill himself by overdosing on painkillers. So you can see this home's just not really functional or really safe, even with the dad out of the picture. Oh, yeah. Throughout the trial, Anne was usually not present. And when she was, the media explained her as a mess. Robert Thompson did seem to go through a lot as a child. He grew up in a violent home that was dangerous and loveless. However, this gave him no right to take Denise and Ralph's son from them. It gave him no excuse to commit such a violent murder. 
What's scary is that when the police went to the home of Robert Thompson to pick him up for questioning, his seven-year-old brother was there. And his brother told them that they knew about the murder of that little boy. In fact, Robert and this brother had gone down to the railroad tracks to leave flowers for James. I know. And this was like so crazy. So he knew he killed that kid. Yep. And he took his brother to take flowers to the spot where they killed him. Just like tons of people were doing. But They did it as well. But then they were, but then at the police station, he was asking if they took him to the hospital. Right. It it was probably a manipulation thing. Yeah. The officer was like so turned off by this story. And he was like, we have got to have the wrong kid. But looking back sends chills down everyone's spine because an adult behaving in that like conniving way is unthinkable. But a child doing it, like acting so devious to take flowers to a spot where you know you murdered someone, it seems super far out of the realm of possibilities. Now, John Venable's family life was very different from Robert's. Although he came from what the media calls a broken home, he actually seemingly had a loving family. His mother, Susan, and father, Nil, lived only one mile apart from each other. And although they had divorced when he was three years old, they got along fairly well, at least enough to co-parent the best that they could. John would spend Sunday through Thursday with his mom and then spent the other days with his dad. In an interview after the murders, Susan says that she didn't think they went wrong. John had all the love any boy would. In fact, he was more loved and cared for than most boys she knew. He had tons of attention and he went on holidays, which is what we in the United States would refer to as a vacation. She talks about how John had Christmas presents and the security of loving parents and a loving brother and sister. Both John's brother and sister, though, did have learning disabilities, so they were not able to attend the same school as John. They were being educated elsewhere in separate schools that could meet their needs. And through all of this, John was really hyperactive and often acting up. His teacher said that he was always looking for attention. And maybe this is because there was special attention given to his brother and sister, but not in a way that they were favorited, just in the way that they needed it with their disabilities. There was one incident, though, reported in January of 1987, where the police were called to the home because Susan had left her children home alone, age seven, five, and three. Mm, It's pretty young. Very young. Case notes reported that Susan had extreme depressive behavior. But Susan Venables was opposite of Ann Thompson. She always showed up to court fully dressed, manicured, and looking her best. The police reportedly did not like Susan during John's interview because she was constantly touching up her makeup. And in the media, Susan was criticized for this. So they didn't like her because she worried about her, what she looked like? Yeah, the police just felt like she was worrying more about herself. And like what she looked like than the situation. And I guess she was distracting a little bit. 
really, though, what is the right way to be a parent of a murderer during a trial? Right. Yeah. Anne got destroyed by the press for being an absent hot mess of a mother. And Susan got destroyed for caring too much about appearance and trying to protect her son. What really has to be remembered is that these parents didn't commit the murder. They did not control this situation or force it to happen. Are there situations where they could have protected their children better? Probably. I don't condone abuse in a home and having children grow up in an environment that is not safe. But as we can see in this scenario, one home did seem to see more violence, while the other home seems to be more loving. But both of these boys were getting into trouble at the time. Both these boys made the choice to abduct and kill a little baby. So, nature versus nurture. I don't know. I lean towards Robert being made more by nurture than nature. And John being made more by nature rather than nurture. Some of my opinion on that will come from information later on in this episode, but I can never really know. Both families were threatened heavily throughout the trial. I mean, they got death threats and they were not able to go out into public. So when the trial ended, both families actually moved out of town and got new identities to try and protect themselves. That's smart. Yeah. I don't think you could go on living there, even though it wasn't their fault. But, you know, a 10-year-old, like, they're being raised by their parents. So people were placing a lot of blame on them. Yeah. Once both the boys were charged, Denise Fergus wasn't really sure how to feel. Like, on one hand, you're happy that your child is getting justice. And then on the other hand, how do you wrap your head around the fact that the people charged with your baby's murder are two 10-year-old children? But she wasn't going to focus on that right away. She needed to put the murder and the trial out of her mind for a bit while she prepared for James' funeral. This wasn't fair to be burying her second child. Remember, she had delivered her first child, Kirsty Bolger, as a stillborn. In her book, she talks about how Kirsty's funeral was devastating but not stressful. The hospital actually made all the arrangements, and although it broke her heart, it was different than this. She said that she didn't have the chance to get to know Kirsty for almost three years before they buried her. Kirstie didn't have a favorite toy or a favorite outfit or a special chair that she sat in or a favorite teddy. She didn't have to choose for Kirstie what favorites to bury her baby with, which is what she was doing right now for James. She chose an outfit from the prior Christmas, a little suit that everyone found him adorable in, and she chose a little white casket for his small body. His body was so little that the casket had to be specially made. And everyone was so kind while she was planning her boy's funeral. The funeral director, Graham Glenn, would not take a payment from her, and neither would the casket company. These little acts of kindness got her through the process and reminded her that there is good in the world, regardless of all the evil she had encountered. Now, remember that Denise was not able to identify the body of James because she didn't want to see him like that. And she also didn't want to know very much about what happened to James. Still to this day, she won't read articles about the specifics and how he was murdered. But Denise did ask to see her baby one last time as the funeral approached. 
However, the police advised her against it. They said she did not need to see her son like that. Looking back, she is grateful she didn't because she gets to remember his round little face and his beautiful smile. At the time, she was a little devastated because she never got to give James one last kiss. She never got to touch him one last time, and she never got the chance to tell him how much she loved him. That would be so hard. I know. I would want to see them again. I know. Because it's not like she planned on this, you know, like the last time she touched him, she was holding his hand. And when she let go, she didn't know that that would be the last time ever. But then if you had to see like. Oh, I know. How beat up his body was. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of the injuries were to his head and to his face. So I'm sure it was way better for her to not see that. Denise was so adamant that she wanted a small family funeral, but this was not going to happen, no matter how bad she wanted it. She was warned that the media would take over the day if she tried to prevent them from being there. They would make scenes and they would do what they could to get a shot of the funeral. So the family agreed to allow the media inside the funeral just to keep the peace and stop them from taking over that day. A three-mile air exclusion was put in place over the church, though, so that they weren't able to get a shot of Denise burying James. But the media wanted their money shot so badly that they offered to pay neighbors that lived across the street of the church to use their bedroom windows so that they could try and get a shot of the family arriving with the casket. Oh my gosh, the media is so crazy. I know, like, seriously, they're selfish is what they are. I know, but then... Like, just give this mother a break. But then it's like the world loves to see it. I know, it's society. So Denise was so distraught at James' funeral and after his death that she couldn't eat, she could barely talk, and she remembers wanting to die. She wished so badly as she watched his casket being lowered into the ground that she could just crawl in there with him. When the funeral ended, the family was still not left to grieve their loss. No, they had to face the trial now. Robert Thompson and John Venables were officially charged on February 20th, 1993. Their first court appearances were at the South Sefton Magistrates Court. And on the day they were set to come, there were more than 500 protesters in the streets. At this time, the public only knew the boys as Child A and Child B, as their names were not allowed to be public knowledge during the trial since they were minors. What, what were, were they protesting? Just justice for... I think just justice for James. Like, the public was super, super mad at the whole thing. So, Denise even wrote in her... I didn't know if it was that or if it was because the boys were so young. No. And there is a lot of controversy that we'll get into, but the people that are more defending the boys being so young are, are more of the people in the legal system, but the public is more pissed that they're kind of protecting them. Okay. So, and I think Denise even wrote in her book, and I don't know if it was at this, when they were showing up to this trial or like the start of their real trial, that they had to, 
give the boys like a they had to do like a decoy vehicle so that everyone thought that the boys were in that vehicle so that they could get them into the court safely because everyone was so mad. So their first court appearance was in a youth court where it was decided that their full trial would start on November 1st, 1993, and they would be tried in adult court. During this court hearing, the legal teams for each boy actually could have requested their own post-mortems, which thankfully they did not do because Denise said at the time she didn't even know that this was a possibility and that if she knew that, it would have finished her off. She could not even think about her baby being cut open the first time, let alone having them do it two more times for each of the boys' legal teams. Oh, yeah. That didn't, wouldn't sound good. Yeah. So thankfully they didn't do that. When the boys were set to show up to court, there were huge crowds of people again. People screaming, let them go, let them go. Not let them go because the people thought two children should be free. No, they screamed let them go because they wanted to see the boys themselves and have vigilante justice. Robert and John were tried together and they were charged with murder, abduction, and attempted abduction. That attempted abduction was because, remember, they were caught trying to take another baby from the New Strand Shopping Center on that same day. During court, their families were allowed to sit in but not be right there with them, so both boys were accompanied by social workers. The prosecution submitted forensic tests that linked the boys to the crime scene. This included the blue paint that was found on both Robert and John as well as James. There was a box of 27 bricks that were covered in blood. James' underpants were also submitted as well as the rusty iron fish plate. They also admitted evidence that the bruising pattern that was found on James' cheek tied directly to Robert Thompson's shoes. The pattern matched the shoelace pattern and the D-rings that held the laces in place, and this was actually the first moment that Robert Thompson's solicitor, Dominic Lloyd, realized that his client had, in fact, been involved in the murder. Remember, Robert completely denied being involved in the killing and was still denying it at this point. And Dominic apparently believed him. Oh, geez. <laughs> but in this moment, he was like, okay, he really did do this. So, the prosecution's theory was in fact that Robert was the lead in the killing, with John participating. Throughout that 60-minute show I watched on this case, the police seemed to be very uncomfortable with Robert Thompson. They explained him as being cold and manipulative. He would cry at the right moments, and then he would get a Mars bar and a Coke each time. But he was never really crying, they said. He never shed one actual tear. They felt that he was doing this on purpose. He had the street smarts, and he didn't seem to be phased by anything that was going on. Lawrence Lee was John Venable's solicitor, and he explained Robert as being the most frightening child he had ever seen. He actually compared him to the Pied Piper, which is basically a German tell of a man hired to get rats out of the town. He lured the rats by playing this magic pipe, and then when the rats came, he drowned them all. 
So the Pied Piper is like this villain in that story. The lead prosecution counsel was able to rebuttal the principle of Dolly Incapax. Hopefully I'm saying that right which basically states that young children cannot be legally responsible for their actions. Through him successfully fighting this, the court found both boys to be capable of mischievous discretion, meaning that their actions had criminal intent behind them and they knew what they were doing and they knew that it was wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know right from wrong at that age. Oh, definitely. During trial, Eileen Vizard testified. She was the child psychiatrist that had been responsible for interviewing Robert before court. When she was asked if Robert would know right from wrong in the fact that it is wrong to take a child away from his mother, she replied, quote, If the issue is on the balance of probabilities, I think I can answer with certainty, end quote. Which I don't really... I don't really know what that means. Does that mean yes? She said, I think I can answer with certainty. Yeah. She said, if the issues on the balance of probabilities, I think I can answer with certainty. So I'm not really sure what her answer means, actually. Uh, it sounds like it was yes. It sounds like yes, but I'm not sure how she's saying it. I don't know. She did go on to explain that Robert was suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder since the murder occurred. And then Susan Bailey was a psychiatrist that had interviewed John Venables. She testified that he, quote, unequivocally knew right from wrong, end quote. The pathologist got up in court and testified for 33 minutes about the extent of James' horrific injuries. Neither boy testified during the trial, but their 20 hours of interview was played back for the court. During this recording, you can hear John talk about how the little boy liked him and how he wanted to hold his hand. John seemed very disturbed by what had happened and was also reported to have PTSD after the murder. After each court appearance, John would actually take off all his clothes at the end and start yelling that he could smell James, quote, like a baby smell, end quote. Murdering somebody would definitely mess with your head, let alone a baby. For sure, especially when you're 10 years old and you're maturing. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it's weird, like, that they say that they have PTSD. But, well, Yeah. That would be expected after that, but did they have some kind of mental illness before? Like, what made him do it? The PTSD didn't make him do it. I mean, maybe Robert's Robert had PTSD from how he grew up. Robert's childhood, yeah. But John, like, what made you do it? <sighs> do you want to know who testified in court, though? 36 witnesses that saw James with these boys on their journey from the New Strand Shopping Center to Walton where his body was found. 36 people. Oh my gosh. You would feel so bad if you found out you were one of them. Oh, I feel like that would traumatize you. Like you could have done something. I mean, it's not their fault that this happened, but it would like affect them. That's quite a bit of people. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Kathleen Richardson was on a bus on her way home that day when she looked out of the window as the bus came to a roundabout. She was on the 67A bus and it was 5.30 p.m. This roundabout was about a mile away from New Strand. She saw two boys with a small baby boy walking between them. Both boys were holding this boy's hands, and then all at once, one boy lets go of his hand while the other throws him into the air and over his shoulder. She actually yelled out on the bus, quote, What the hell are those kids doing to that poor child? What kind of friggin' parents have they got to let them out with a child like that? End quote. She explains them as being so rough with him and how it upset her so deeply that it will never leave her especially now that she knows the evil she was witnessing. There was a driver for a dry cleaning service that saw the boys. His name was Mark Pimblett. He also saw three kids near that roundabout and noticed that the two older boys were dragging the little one. He explains that the baby looked like he was trying to dig in, meaning dig his feet into the ground so that he couldn't be dragged any further. As he kept driving, he had the urge to check back one more time in the rearview mirror. And when he did that, he saw one older boy kick the baby right under his arm. Quote, it wasn't like a full blast kick. It was more like to persuade him to come on. End quote. Oh, I, I think I would say something. I know. It's just like. There's some little kids if they were doing that. Like, hey, where's your mom? Yeah, like, what are you doing? Why are you kicking him? Even if it is your brother. I know. So one woman saw the moment Robert picked James up and threw him down on his head, resulting in that goose egg. This woman was Lorna Brown, and she cried while testifying about what she saw. She noticed his fresh speckled mark in the center of his forehead. She initially walked by, but then... She thought she was going to walk back and make sure that the little boy was okay. But when she returned, they were already gone. So she kind of walked by it and she probably questioned it while she kept walking. And she decided like, okay, I do need to go check on that boy. But by the time she got there, they weren't there. Oh, it's so sad because if just one person would have stopped him. I know. Like. There were so many times where he could have been saved or I even think like this was a while ago, but like if they had something, they didn't have cell phones, but I don't know. I was thinking like an Amber Alert, like everyone on the streets knew a boy was missing from the mall, but it probably wouldn't have gotten out in time anyways. I'm so nosy. I would be like, where is your mom? Okay, I'm staying with you until we go get her. (laughs) (laughs) I know I could definitely see you doing that I feel like I'm a little (laughs) passive with people like I'm always scared to confront like other people's kids or anything so I'd like to say I do something but it's also like would I do the same thing and think like he's probably okay right I mean now I wouldn't for sure because I've read the story so if anyone hurts a kid in front of me they better watch out because I will say something Oh, it's so stressful. (laughs) So Malcolm Walton saw him by that Liverpool canal where he did get dropped. And he explained him as, quote, crying his eyes out, end quote, which just hurts my heart. 
I know. It's so sad. It's, I just, I'm so shocked that just not one person said anything. I know. It's not like the boy was happy-go-lucky going with, you know, his siblings or something. No, he was he, like. He was obviously acting out. Yes. So Pauline Murphy testified that she saw James holding the hand of a young boy in a beige coat. At one point, the boy let go of the baby's hand and he tried to run away. And then the boy in the black coat ran after him, grabbed him and brought him back. The little boy looked so confused, but she didn't know what was going on. Quote, I just thought they were friends or something. The little boy didn't seem to mind. I thought they were just relatives. End quote. Which like, okay, but don't say that the little boy didn't seem to mind because he was trying to run away. I mean, he's little. He is a little boy. He's two, almost three. It would just seem odd to have two little kids. That's what I was going to say. Like, even if they weren't hurting him, it would be weird that someone would send a little boy with two 10-year-olds, like, out on the streets. Yeah. So that should have been cause for concern. But, again, hindsight is twenty twenty when you know what happened, you know? Yeah. One woman even urged the boys to take their little brother home because he was crying for his mummy. So, as we've talked about, none of these people did intervene because they assumed that the boys knew the child. Brothers, maybe, cousins, friends. What they saw was unsettling, but didn't cause them that much concern until later on when they realized what actually happened. They had seen evil as it was playing out, but they had no idea at the time. Thankfully, Denise Fergus does not blame these people for not intervening. Of course, she wishes that they would have. Maybe her baby would be here today had someone realized that the situation was wrong. But it wasn't their fault. No one could imagine in their mind that two 10-year-olds would ever brutalize a child in the way that they did. Denise only places blame on the two boys who murdered her son. After all the evidence and testimony was presented, there was a verdict. On November 24, 1993, the boys were now aged 11, and they were found guilty, making them the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century in Britain. Mr. Justice Moreland was the judge that presided over this case, and when they were convicted, he stated that they had committed a crime of, quote, unparalleled evil and barbarity. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and wicked, end quote. After this, they were detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, meaning that someone is detained indefinitely until it is officially decided that it is safe to release them. After this, the judge recommended that the boys stay in custody for very, very many years. The boys' recommended minimum sentence was eight years. At the conclusion of the trial, after the boys were found guilty, the judge decided to make their names public. He did this because, quote, public interest overrode the interests of the defendants, end quote. He believed that there was a need for an informed public debate on the crimes committed by children. So don't tell me they got out when they were 18. Mm-hmm. They did. You'll see. <laughs> they did? Oh, my gosh. Ugh. So, 
After this, Lord Taylor of Godsforth and Lord Chief Justice recommend that the boys serve 10 years instead of eight so that they were eligible to be released at the age of 20 in February of 2003. So that's what it got up to. It did get up to 10 years. But this still outraged the public as well as the Bolger family. I mean, eight to 10 years for murdering a young baby. Are you kidding well, I would just think that the like they would be scared because those kids are likely to go do that again. Right. So the editors of the Sun newspaper wanted to help out and they actually started this petition to increase the time that the boys would spend in prison. Their petition got 280,000 signatures on it. And so they handed it over to Michael Howard and it worked. So on July 1994, Michael Howard, who was the home secretary at the time, decided that the boys would be detained for 15 years, now being eligible for release at 25 years old in February of 2008. This still was not enough time for the Bulger family, but it was a start and it was better than what it was. But then a man named Lord Donaldson was like, nope, that's not fair. I don't think Howard should have intervened and increased the term. So regardless of the 280,000 signatures asking for these boys to have a longer prison sentence, the 4,400 letters of support to keep them in there for their entire lives, and the 6,000 letters asking for a minimum of 25 years, the increased term was overturned in 1997 by the House of Lords, who said it was unlawful for the Home Secretary to decide on minimum sentences. This was the beginning of so much protection and sympathy being given to these two murderers. Denise feels that the system keeps failing her and her family and that they care more about these boys than her baby who had his life taken. With this, the prime minister, John Mayer, came out and said, quote, society needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less, end quote which I agree. I think even though someone's 10 years old, if you choose to murder someone, you still have to face those consequences. I know. It, it's it's hard. I know. You can go back and I forth mean, about it all you, day. You can look. I Yeah, exactly. Like they were 10 years old. Should they have a chance once they become adults? I don't know. Doesn't sound like Robert would be able to be rehabilitated. But. And it is a debate and it, it it's been a debate. I think this is also a little bit why this case is so important to talk about because Denise and Ralph and their family feels like so much more should be being done for them. And then, you know, a lot of people in the legal system feel that more should be done for the boys because they still have, you know, a life and they think they should rehabilitate them and all this stuff. But it's just hard to know what to do. Very. So when the trial ended... This was actually the first moment Denise realized that James was really dead. Since his disappearance and through his funeral and through the trial, she refused to accept it. She actually kept thinking to herself, like, maybe they made a huge mistake. Maybe at the courthouse, he might just come running through those doors. She actually chose not to attend the trial because, as stated earlier, she did not want to know those details. But she did attend on the last day when both boys were found guilty and the trial ended. 
A wall of grief, sadness, anger, and heartbreak hit her as she realized that this was real life. James really was murdered. These boys really took his life. He was never coming home. Robert Thompson was then sent to Barton Moss Secure Center in Manchester. Robert's mom and Thompson went to visit him every three days. And then John Venables was sent to Vardy House, which had eight beds and was at the Red Bank Secure Unit in St. Helens on Merseyside. Both boys received education and rehabilitation while imprisoned. John's parents regularly visited him and his dad, Neil Venables, stated after the trial, quote, I feel for that family. I feel so sorry for them. I have lost my son as well. We will never be able to do the fun things anymore. Football, snooker, things like that, end quote. Which I'm sorry, but you're joking. Because I hate when people compare their loss to be the same as the family that their child murdered. I know, the the kid that's dead literally has nothing. Exactly. You won't ever get anything with that, that little baby James. No. His mom doesn't get to see anything. Yeah, so don't say you feel for them and in the same breath you're like, oh, but I lost my son too. No, your son's here. Yeah. Like he even still has the majority of his life free. You're you're losing eight years of his childhood and that will never compare, especially to the disturbing way that they lost their son. That's like beyond imaginable. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. So his mom, Susan, had also said, quote, what he's done is wrong, so he needs to be punished. What upsets me is that I have no way of bringing him up for the rest of his young years. So he's going to lose all of his childhood. End Mm, quote. That's okay because doesn't sound like he had much of a good one anyways. Yeah. Well, John was the one with the like better parents. Oh. Or, you know, what was reported as the better parents. This was John's mom? Yes. Oh, okay. And she said that, but it's like, I don't know. It's just like, don't try to get sympathy that your child isn't getting a childhood because he, he took a baby's entire childhood. Yeah. He had more of a childhood than James had. Mm-hmm. She also believes that John was just weak. That had it not been for Robert scaring him and forcing him to do this, that he would never have done something so evil. She says that Robert threatened him, that his older brother would beat him if he ever told anybody and if he didn't participate. But wait till the end of this episode, because while we have heard all along that Robert, the one described as an urban feral child out of control, was the ringleader, I'm not really sure that that's the truth. Really? Yeah. <laughs> do do tell. So, <laughs> we will get into that as we get into the episode. Oh my gosh. I know. And I think you'll probably see do the we same. Have a third episode? No. Because we've already been going like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This is such a long one. It's so hard. It was so hard for me to get everything in. I probably spent 30 hours like researching and writing. Seriously. My hands hurt actually from typing so much. (laughs) So kind of like I said, James lost his entire childhood and his entire life. I understand that as a parent of a murderer, it would be heartbreaking 
But what would really kill me, I think, is that my own child was able to do that. Like I would be hurting for the family that my child hurt. I wouldn't be wallowing in my own self-pity. I mean, it's not their fault. It's not something I can probably even ever understand. It's just that to me, the most respectful thing to do seems that you would want to stray away from talking about the loss of your kid's childhood and the loss of your child when they murdered a baby in the most evil way. Right. I mean, you would feel that way and that's okay to feel that way because they did lose that, but just don't, don't say that out loud. Yes, but don't be talking about it in the media. So Ann Thompson says, quote, they always blame the parents. It's a very difficult situation when you are getting no support as a family. You're alone and you face the world alone the same as I'm doing now, end quote. And I do totally empathize with that. I empathize with being scared of threats. It would be a huge challenge to survive each day. That would be so heartbreaking to come to terms with your child doing this, but just don't be defending them. And I mean, it wasn't her. Yeah, it's not the parents' fault that they did it. No. The the boys knew right from wrong. Exactly. Their, Their parents, it's not their fault. No, just be very careful in how you talk about it in the media after. (laughs) Just don't talk about it. Yeah. So in 1995, Denise Fergus and Ralph Bolger actually divorced. The death of James had been way too much for them. They couldn't even talk to each other about what had happened. So Ralph retreated into alcohol and burying his feelings with excessive drinking, while Denise retreated into herself. She could only find peace in the silence of her own bedroom. It's really sad that it would like tear them apart, but also very normal. I think people struggle in marriage even after losing a child in a more... Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah, even without all the horrific things that surrounded this death. So, Ralph and Denise did have one more child after James, and his name was Michael. She was actually pregnant during the trial, and Michael was born shortly after the trial concluded. Michael's birth, though, unfortunately, did not heal that distance between them. And Denise said one day Ralph said he was going out and he never came home. Later on in 2013, Ralph Bolger actually wrote a book titled My James. And it is reported that in this book, he admits that he did blame Denise for James' death. He blamed her for letting go of his hand back then. But at the time that he wrote his book, He was ashamed that he had blamed her, and it was a mistake that he made in his grief. Oh, that that would be so hard because you are human, so you might feel that way, but... Yeah. Dang. Through your grief, it would be really hard to even see clearly. I, I can see how he could be like, well, James was at the store with her, and why did she let go of his hand and all this stuff? And, you know, in grief, I think, you know, you go through anger, right? There's the stages of grief and anger is one and he was probably angry with her but now looking back at least he's able to recognize that it wasn't her fault and that he doesn't blame her anymore yeah that's good denise went on to get remarried to stuart wow stuart denise went on to get remarried to stuart i can't say stuart (laughs) 
Stuart. Stuart. I keep saying stu stu. Okay. Jeez. Denise went on to get remarried to Stuart Fergus in 1998, and they had a couple more sons. She now has three living sons, Michael Bolger, Thomas Fergus, and Leon Fergus. Ralph also remarried much later on to a woman named Natalie McDermott. And 20 years after James' passing, he had a daughter in 2014. Which the article I read on this was like, 20 years after James passed, Ralph becomes a father again. And it's like, well, um, he had that one son, Michael Bolger. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) He was a father this whole time, but yes, he had another daughter in 2014. Oh, wow. He's an older older father. Yep. Had her later on. But regardless of their divorce, they still had to live through this pain together and fight the system that they both feel keeps failing them. In 1999, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Robert Thompson and John Venables did not receive a fair trial because they were tried in adult court and in the public eye. The court had dismissed the claims that the trial was inhumane, but upheld the claim that the trial was unfair. They agreed that Michael Howard's intervention in agreeing to extend the minimum sentence created a, quote, highly charged atmosphere, end quote. With this, a court ruled on March 15, 1999, 14 votes to five, that there was a violation to Article 6 on human rights regarding the fairness of the trial, quote, The public trial process in an adult court must be regarded in the case of an 11-year-old child as severely intimidating procedure, end quote. Which, like, I'm sorry, but, like, were you really so unhappy that these boys got 10 years for the murder of a two-year-old? Like, just take that and be fine with it. I know. Who was it? It was the legal system, yeah. It was the legal system? Their legal team had appealed... And had said, you know, it was inhumane, it was all this stuff, and the European court agreed with the fact that they didn't have a fair trial. And with this decision of the trial being unfair, they were awarded money, 29,000 euros to John Venables and 15,000 euros to Robert Thompson. What? (laughs) Yeah. Are you kidding me? It's like... Oh, and it's probably for their lawyers or something, but it's still like, I do not care. Do not do that. Oh, <sighs> that is more than frustrating. Oh, so frustrating. And the Bulgers are so frustrated about it. And I think that's where a lot of my frustration comes to because I don't necessarily understand all the stuff in the legal system, especially the legal system in England. But if the Bulger family is mad about it, I'm mad about it because I am on their side. I want them to have everything that they want out of this case. Yeah. So in September of 1999, a few months later, the Bulgers appealed this decision, but they were unsuccessful in trying to convince the court that victims of a crime have the right to be involved in the decision of determining a sentence of the perpetrator. With all of this, the new Lord Chief Justice, Lord Wolfe, needed to review the minimum sentence. And in October 2000, almost eight years after the conviction, he decided the minimum sentence would be reduced to eight years. 
Shortly after this, a six-month parole review ended, and in June of 2001, both boys were ruled to no longer be a threat to public safety, and they were released a few weeks later. 18 years old. Oh, my. The home secretary at the time was David Blunkett, and he approved this decision. One of Lord Wolf's reasons for reducing the sentence was because he says that the young offender institutions are corrosive for juveniles. Oh, okay. So let's have them be in a corrosive environment their entire juvenile time. And then the second that they're 18, let's just set them free as new adults. Release them. Yeah. I'm like, that actually, yeah. to me, that statement is like, okay, you need to leave them in a little it's longer. Terrifying. Because at 18, they can just go on to do whatever they want. They don't have to listen to their parents. They don't have to live with their parents. So he's like, yeah, it's so corrosive for them. But, you know, even though it's really damaging, let's just let them out when they're 18. Let them free. Yeah, that's just absurd. Yeah, not let them mature at all or anything. It's just You're so ridiculous. You're definitely not mature by 18. No. You think you are. <laughs> for sure. You think so. I got married when I was 18. <laughs> So both John and Robert were released on lifelong license, meaning that they will be on parole for the rest of their life. They were both given new identities, and it is reported that this allegedly cost more than 1 million euros to have done. They received passports, nation insurance numbers, qualification certificates, and medical records in these new identities. David Blunkett added his own conditions to their license and wanted daily updates on what they were doing sent to him. More terms of their license include that they were never allowed to contact each other or the Bulger family. They are prohibited from visiting the Merseyside region, although Denise says that she knows this was breached before. Curfews may be imposed on them and they have to report to probation officers. There was an injunction imposed that does not allow their new identities or locations to ever be published, and it was granted because there is a strong probability that their lives would be at risk if the public knew where they were. The public was outraged at their short sentence and their release. Uh, yeah. Yeah, as you would be. And Denise's new husband, Stuart, said that he had never seen her as low as he did than when she found out that they had been released. In an interview the couple did, they talk about how she locked herself in the bathroom. She's like, I just sort of went in there and smashed the bathroom up, didn't I? They sort of laugh when she said this, but not in a funny way, more in a way that you could hear the pain in the chuckle of that memory. She felt like she had failed James again, just as she felt that she had failed him when she let go of his hand. She had promised James she would keep those boys locked up, and she was not able to deliver. But as we all know, she could not control any of that. None of this was her fault. She wears a ring on her hand that says mom and a pin that says for James. This pin is heart-shaped, and it shows a little boy holding the hand of a slightly older girl. And this is really sweet because I'm assuming that it's in reference to him being in heaven with his older sister, Kirstie. And Denise is representing in this pin both her children that passed away. Oh yeah. That's special. Yeah. It is. And it made me have tears in my eyes. Oh, I know. It's so sweet. So... 
Denise actually tracked down Robert Thompson after he was released. She said they may have their identities changed. They may have been moved, but she says they will never be able to change their faces and that they can never hide from her. How? She actually she tracked him <laughs> down. Yeah, she tracked him down. I don't know how she did it, but she did. And she talks about it in her book. And she planned to confront him and to scream in his face in front of everyone. Why did you kill my child? Jeez, I would be scared. I don't I don't know if I would be brave enough to do that. I know. Like I, I would I don't think I would want to track him down. Well, she found him and she stared at him, but she was so consumed with hatred that it was so overwhelming it paralyzed her and she couldn't do it. After this, she actually planned to track down John as well. But as time went on, she has found peace in the thought of never seeing them again. She doesn't want them to be anywhere near her. So maybe it was just like her emotions right when they were released. She's like, Mm-mm, I'm not letting you get away with this. Oh. And she says in her book, like, to make it very clear that she doesn't believe in vigilante justice. She doesn't want people to go out and hurt them, but she really did want to confront them. Yeah. Her son, Michael, explains that her mom anxiety is intense. He was never allowed to travel alone. They actually have CCTV footage and security lights around their home. And one of her younger sons said on 60 Minutes that he could never enjoy himself when he was out because she would text him every five minutes. <laughs> Which is so real. Like mom anxiety is real. It can be consuming. I know I have it 100%, especially because of the things we talk about. My mom always says that I need therapy. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared of everything. But then it's like, I can't. <laughs> because this stuff is so scary. But then can you imagine, like, if if your worst fear actually happened, how would you cope for the rest of your life? Yeah. Like, having another child, I can totally see that she was totally overbearing as she should be because... I mean, the worst thing happened to her. I'm like a crazy person with my kids already. Yes, sometimes. Okay. I think you shouldn't <laughs> be doing these podcasts because you get so scared. <laughs> I am aware and I'm making others aware. At one point after the trial, there was a documentary made and in it was Dominic Lloyd, Robert Thompson's solicitor. And he talked in it about how years after the trial, one juror said that they found the boys guilty of murder, but that's because they didn't have the option of finding them guilty of being two frightened little boys who made a mistake and needed a lot of help. And this pissed people off that were viewing the documentary. And a bunch of tweets came for him and that juror. One said, quote, it wasn't fair to interview him. He was in great distress. And what about that little innocent boy he killed? It's beyond me. End quote. Another tweet said, quote, an awful mistake. They didn't kill him in an accident. It was premeditated and they tortured that poor baby. How can people defend their actions? End quote. Another said, bullshiz about two frightened kids who made a terrible mistake. The tapes said they kept stoning him even when he was trying to get up. They knew what they were doing, end quote. And the last 
that was reported said, quote, an awful mistake for 10 year olds is shoplifting, not murdering a two year old. FFS, end quote, which FFS means for sake. Means what? For sake. (laughs) (laughs) So and I am on the side of these tweeters because I understand that the boys were 10 and that they were children, but just something about what they did is so evil. I could never stand behind them or make excuses for what they chose to do. Like they knew what was going on. They knew right from wrong. They wanted to murder a child that day and they made it happen. Yeah, they did. Um, <laughs> playing the devil's advocate, no, like that's how at least Robert grew up. So he may have just been like, doing what what he's seen his dad do yeah it's really sad well what seems weird to me is like i mean wouldn't you feel that that's that's what i'm saying like the mental illness because any normal person you would just feel sick right and that could be probable for sure but it's like don't you know when you're murdering somebody like at 10 I don't know. Yeah, I think about it a lot because we talk about a lot of these kind of murders and stuff. And it's like, do you have no conscience? Because, I mean, (laughs) remember when Shannon accidentally ran over that little kitty? And then I was like trying to put it out of its misery. And I couldn't. Yeah, and you like could not do it. No, I felt like inside myself. Because it was like dying and you like wanted to actually fully kill it but you're like i can't kill it yeah i did i couldn't like my conscience just wouldn't let me right so i I think about that like how how do those people do that kind of stuff and i just keeps coming back to me they're mentally ill they really are i mean they have to be you have to be mentally ill to kill somebody you have to be and like to do some of these horrific crimes like something has to be wrong with your brain Mm mm-hmm So remember how police said that Robert was the ringleader, the scarier one of the two. Yes, I've been waiting for this. Well, here we go. So Amanda Knowles was the children's resource unit manager, and she worked with both of the boys when they were still in the secure units. She explained Robert as being successfully rehabilitated, while she explained John as disturbed. He would suck his thumb, and he was so troubled. So we have these two conflicting reports, with the police saying that Robert was more deranged, more manipulating, which is backed by John's parents, Susan and Neil Venables, saying that their son was threatened into this murder, connived to do it because he was weak, because he was a follower. And then on the other side, you have Amanda saying that John was far more disturbed. Something in his mind was just off. This is backed by Robert's mom saying that Robert always denied being the one to kill James and she believed him. John wanted to kidnap James, remember? I mean, obviously they're both disturbed. Oh, of course. Yeah, they both are. But Amanda says just like through the rehabilitation process that John just was, she didn't feel like he made the progress Robert did, although the unit he was in did feel like he made good progress and he clearly got released at the same time. So yeah, it would be really interesting to know like where they're both at today. We'll get into it a little. Oh, so (laughs) 
<laughs> so before we get into it, I just want to say that I would I wouldn't think that you would have it because no one knows their names. Right. Well, you'll see. But Denise found out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't her, but she could have if she wanted to. But I believe that both boys acted purposeful, manipulative, and evil. They were both troubled in their own ways. They both killed James Bulger together. Neither one, to me, has less of a role in this crime. And I think they both should have served longer sentences. But here is where we are now. Since release, Robert Thompson has never reoffended that we know of. It is reported that during his parole hearing, he was apologetic and that he went into details about his deranged childhood and the torment that he went through. Quote, I am deeply ashamed of what I did and of having played a part in this horrible murder. I was out of control because my life on the streets was better for me than my life at home. End quote. He also said, quote, I do feel aware that I am now a better person and have a better life and a better education than if I had not committed the murder. There is obvious irony in this, but it is a part of my remorseful feelings as well. End quote. He admitted to the parole board that he lied about having no involvement in the crime. He says that he did this because he was scared after seeing the public reaction to the crime in the days before he was arrested and in the months before his trial. It is reported that Robert is in a relationship with a man that does know his true identity, but I only saw this in one report, so take that as you may. And that's pretty much all we know about Robert. But then there's John Venables. In 2010, he was sentenced to jail again after he was caught distributing more than 100 images of child sexual abuse. Eerie that you would kill a kid as a child, remove his pants and mutilate his genitals, claim that you never wanted to hurt him, it was the other boy, but you're an adult now and you are not only looking at sexual abuse of children, you are also distributing it. Ugh, disgusting clearly there's something wrong with John and he must have been born this way because when you look at it Robert had the worst childhood the police said Robert was scarier and all this stuff but John clearly has something wrong with him yeah and this same year Maggie Atkinson who was at the time the Children's Commissioner for England, actually asked for the age of legal responsibility to be moved from 10 to 12 in light of the Bulger trial because she believes that children can't understand the consequences of their actions. Which, like, um, I'm sorry, but if you're adult enough to murder, you're adult enough to face legal responsibility. My five-year-old knows that it's wrong to hurt someone. Children are far more capable than a lot of people give them credit for. And like, hello, John just reoffended this same year. Like the right thing for him after he murdered James was to be held legally responsible. Clearly, he needed to be in prison for even longer, probably for life, because we can see he was never rehabilitated. So Denise and Ralph asked the parole board in 2013 not to let John go. Denise knew this would happen again. She knew the killing of her baby was not a mistake. But in 2013, John was released on parole again after serving just a little more than two years. Oh. 
I know. Like you give him eight years for a murder. He literally reoffends with child sexual abuse images. And you're like, yeah, two years is good. He's good. But then in November of 2017, he was caught with indecent child abuse images on his computer. Videos of girls as young as eight years old being raped and sexual abuse of children as young as two. Not only were these found on his computer, he also had in his possession a pedophilia manual. What? Which like, what? (laughs) That's what I said. There's a manual on pedophilia. I was going to say, what even is that? I do not know. Disgusting book. Yeah, and I saw that in multiple sources. Some people called it a pedo manual, a pedophilia manual, and it's like, huh? It's like a book all about pedophilia? It's disgusting. Again, their minds are not right. Yeah, he is a sick little creep. Psycho. What he also did was he went online pretending to be a mother that was offering her child up to others to be abused. What? Like, what is that? What? First of all, what are you getting out of that? This is twisted. He pretended to be a mom that had a child and was offering this child up on the internet. Did he want to see who was going to reach out and like he'd sell images to them or what? It's just that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Please tell me he's in prison now for the rest of his life. Well, he was sentenced to 40 months in jail. In February 2018, which was almost 40, 40 months, 40, (laughs) so like four years, literally. And when he was sentenced, it was almost 25 years to the day that he killed James Bolger. Now, Ralph Bolger was outraged by the sentence saying, quote, 40 months is a joke. It's an insult to the family. We've got to watch the sexual deviant. We know what he's capable of. He's just waiting for another victim, end quote. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. He's going to just keep getting out. Like, this is his third offense. You send him away for good. Yeah, get him off the street. Bye-bye. You never have the chance to get out. So... Ralph wants to make sure that there is never another victim. So he called for John Venable's secret identity to be revealed for the safety of the public. He's like, why are we protecting this monster even though he's in his adult years? He's committing these crimes now as an adult. Let him face like so he's committing these crimes as an adult and they're they're putting it out there that John Venables is reoffending, but they're not putting out there his new identity. So when he's released, no one knows that that is him. Oh yeah, I was going to say how do they know all this info about him if they don't know? Yeah, who so it they're is. saying it's John Venables. Like, yeah. Police. So to the media, oh, the they're are. saying, yeah. They're admitting that John Venables oh, did these things. But they're not letting the public know what the the new identity's name is. So if you just meet someone on the street. That's crazy. Yeah, and that's what Ralph's saying. Like, you need to protect people. People have the right to know. Jesus, it's just going to happen again. Yeah. But on March 4th, 2019, it was ruled that John would keep his anonymity to protect him from serious violence and vigilante justice. The judge said there could be fatal consequences to his identity being revealed. Good. I know. It's like, okay, bye bye. (laughs) You're not very good to this world. So 
In 2020, John was denied parole. Thank goodness. But I'm sure he'll keep getting it. And one day he will probably be released since he was only sentenced to 40 months. A palate cleanser is what makes you feel good after a scary podcast. Do you know what a bare-nosed wombat is? The bare-nosed wombat is a furry Australian animal that poops 100 six-sided poops every day. <laughs> that means that it poops cubes. Their poops are little squares. <laughs> it has something to do with their intestines. That's so grass was so funny. Bye. Have a good day.